Good morning. My name is Dave Heinrichs. Good morning. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to bring you the message this morning. Yeah, and I just want to echo just words in Mindy's prayer. It is such a privilege to be a part of this church family. You know, I actually find it interesting, speaking about families, seeing the things that run in families. Now, I'm not speaking about, you know, the genetic things that get passed down to us, like, you know, thinning hairlines and stuff. I mean, things that, uh, that I find particularly interesting are the values that one generation holds dear and that the next one chooses to make their own as well. So, for example, my favorite sport is soccer. And if you were to ask my children what their favorite sport is, chances are they would say it's soccer too. Probably wouldn't surprise you to find out that my dad and my brothers are also avid soccer fans. And then take my wife's family. It's easy to see how the values are passed down through their career choices. So Andrea, she is a teacher. Her sister is a teacher. Both her parents were teachers. She has an uncle and an aunt who are teachers and also grandparents who are teachers. It's like teaching is the family business, right? You don't go against the family, right? Godfather, anyone? No, thank you. Graham, I can always count on you. I always appreciate that support. Now, there are other things beyond sports and careers that our families pass down to us from one generation to the next. And many of these things we can just take or leave. It's not like if one of my sons were to come to me one day and say, Dad, I actually have no interest in soccer. Oliver. And um, it's not like at that point I would say, well, you're no longer a part of the family, right? But there are other things that seem like they are actually an indispensable part of our family's identity. It's what it means to bear the family name. You do these things because, hey, this is what our family does. And these things can differ from one family to the next. Like for our family, this includes things like eating dinner together, spending time together, even going to church together are things that our family does because My parents and Andrea's parents, they pass these things down to us. Their parents pass it down to them. And we hope that this runs in the family, that our kids will pass this on to the next generation too. And in this morning's passage that we're going to look at, we see that in God's kingdom, something similar happens. That there are things we do because, well, hey, that's what our Heavenly Father does. It's what his son Jesus did, and it's what's expected of the next generation of those who bear his name. They are to follow suit because this is what it means to be a part of his family. Because in God's kingdom, loving enemies runs in the family. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 38 to 48. These are the words of Jesus. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anybody slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. And if anybody wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. 
You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Now, we are a third of the way through the Sermon on the Mount series that we're doing that I've entitled, Life in God's Countercultural Kingdom. And in his sermon, Jesus is instructing his listeners how to, how to live life in the kingdom of heaven. Because it is radically different from the cultural norms and expectations of their world as they experience it. However, if they want to be his followers and citizens of his coming kingdom, then they need to live in a whole new way, a way that is defined by right relationships and following his direction over every part of their lives. And if you had any doubts whether or not life in God's kingdom was countercultural, then the words that Jesus instructs his followers with today should put all of those doubts to rest. He starts this morning's text just as he started with the last five principles that he addressed in his Sermon on the Mount with this phrase, you have heard it said. And this phrase is an indicator that Jesus is comparing what the people have heard previously from the scribes and the Pharisees about how to follow God's ways with Christ's own instructions on how to live out God's principles found in his word. You have heard it said, he says in verse 38, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Now this is reference to instruction that was found in the book of Exodus, chapter 21, verse 24, where God gave Moses the laws that were to govern the Israelites after they had left Egypt and had formed a new nation. And this principle, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, it's known as lex talianus. Lex Talianus, it's the principle of exact retribution. And it was given by God to Israel to lay the foundation for justice for the nation in legal disputes. And it specified that punishments for wrongdoers must be limited to compensating victims an exact equivalent of the offense they suffered, but no more. So for example... If my bull got loose from its pen and it gored your prized oxen, then I would owe you one prized oxen, not a prized oxen and a goat, right? It's an exact, exact compensation. No more, no less. Now, the impact of this law was significant for the nation. It had the effect of defining justice and restraining revenge. So it prevented people from taking the law into their own hands and seeking out vigilante justice. And it nullified the threat of escalating feuds. I don't know if any of you experience escalating feuds in your homes, maybe with your children, right? Like, I got you, or you got me, now I'm going to get you back twice as bad. 
Anybody else can recognize that? I know I did with my brothers growing up, right? And it goes in circles, and it just gets bigger. And so this law, it nullified that. Lex talionis is a good principle for legal justice. Wrongdoers should compensate their victims for their crimes, and governments should also be restrained from exacting too much punishment on the guilty. But though this is a good principle for legal justice, it was never intended to be used in personal relationships. And this is where the scribes and the Pharisees once again twisted and manipulated a good principle of God's word and they exploited it to justify their own desires for personal revenge and retaliation. Then in verse 43 of our passage this morning, Jesus addresses another scribal misinterpretation of God's word that the religious leaders of that day promoted, saying, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, many of us here this morning are probably very familiar with the command to love our neighbor, but probably are wondering, where in the Bible does it command us to hate our enemies? It doesn't. The religious scholars, they got the first part about loving your neighbor from Leviticus 19.18, which says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. However, the scribes interpreted the command to love your neighbor as permission or license to hate their enemy. They took neighbor to mean anybody who is like them. So a fellow Jew. But non-Jews, like the Roman occupiers in Jesus' day, they were Gentiles. These were not neighbors. They're not our people, thus making them the enemy. But that list of neighbors could actually get more and more exclusive. It could be limited to just include those who lived up to a certain standard or expectation of holiness. Thus, the enemies list became broader eventually for the religious leaders to even include fellow Israelites who weren't up to scratch. Sinners whom they did not want to associate with. But this was their standard. And this was never God's. God did not teach that there was one standard of morality that one applied to a neighbor and another standard of morality that we applied to everybody else. In fact, the Old Testament laws insist that love's requirements were the same for Israelite and foreigner. Only a few verses down from that command in Leviticus 19 to love our neighbor as ourselves. In verse 34, it says, The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your neighbor born, your native born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt. You know what it's like to be treated poorly as an enemy. So love them. I am the Lord. You see, love isn't just to be limited to those who are similar to us. In Luke's gospel, we see an encounter between Jesus and this expert in the law that radically redefines our understanding of our neighbor that not only includes our enemy, but also includes any human in need. In this encounter, this lawyer, he asks Jesus what he needs to, be, to do to be saved. 
What do I need to do in order to be this citizen of your coming kingdom? And Jesus says, well, you know what's written in the word. Like, you know what's in the law. You tell me. And the lawyer says, love God and love my neighbor. Jesus says, great. Now go and do it. But this lawyer wants to justify himself. So he asks Jesus, will you tell me who my neighbor is that I must love? And Jesus, who always likes to give a more roundabout kind of answer to people when they ask things like that, he tells a parable that we refer to as the Good Samaritan. In this parable, it begins with a man, presumably a Jewish man, who is making his way from Jerusalem to Jericho. And on the way, he gets apprehended by some robbers, beaten and left for dead. And the first person to come uh, upon him is a priest. And the priest sees him, but he crosses to the other side of the street and he carries on his way. Now the second man to come upon this injured victim is a Levite. Basically it's a priest's assistant. And he does the same thing as the priest. He sees the injured man and he crosses the road and he carries on his way as well. But the third person to come upon this injured man was a Samaritan. And historically, Samaritans were Israelites' enemies. And it's a weird relationship that Samaritans and the Israelites had because they had a shared history, but the Samaritans, they, they were a little askew in their theology, and for some reason this made the Israelites hate them even more. They wouldn't even cross over into Samaria, but to get from one part of Israel to another, they would take the long way around so they wouldn't have to even go through that land. So this Samaritan, this enemy, he sees this injured Israelite, and he has, Jesus says, he took pity on him. He showed him compassion. And he picked him up, and he took him to town, and he, he cared for him. He paid for uh, him to get better. And the parable ends with Jesus asking the lawyer, which of the men in this story acted as a neighbor to the injured man? And the lawyer he begrudgingly acknowledges that it was the Samaritan. But he can't even bear to say the name of his enemy. So instead he says, the one who had mercy. And Jesus tells him, you go and do likewise. You go and be the neighbor. You go and show compassion to people and have mercy on them. In the passage we're looking at today, Jesus is, a, is far more succinct in addressing our behavior towards enemies. In one fell swoop, he cuts down our justifications for revenge right at the knees. And he demolishes our rationalizations for hatred and grudges, leaving his audience gobsmacked and, dare I say, many of us with our mouth hanging open as well. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to them the other cheek also. If anybody wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Talk about countercultural. Surely he's speaking metaphorically here, right? He doesn't actually expect us to behave this way. I'm afraid he does. You see, these were real-life examples of how people in that day could be offended or injured by someone and here Jesus is giving his countercultural instruction to his followers of how they are to respond by accepting injustice without revenge and responding in love. 
Because in God's kingdom, loving enemies runs in the family. So first is his command to turn the other cheek. So if you received a slap on the right cheek, because everybody did things with their right hand, you would have received it with the back of the other person's hand. So not only was this violence, but this was actually intended culturally to humiliate you. The other person, by slapping you like this, is implying that you are an inferior. That in this honor and shame culture, this was the ultimate insult that you could receive. But rather than hit them back, Jesus instructs his followers to respond by turning the other cheek, the left cheek. And if you were to receive a blow on the left cheek, they would have to hit you with their right hand with the, the front of their hand. And what this did is it forced the other person, if you're going to hit me, you're going to have to treat me like an equal, not with the back of the hand. And it actually, what Jesus wants to do is stop the violence from going around in the circles and escalating. His second instruction was to give the person who is suing the shirt off your back your coat as well. And in that culture, typically, people only wore these two upper garments, was the shirt and the coat. And the coat was actually slept in, and it was needed to keep the people warm at night. It was a vital piece of clothing, right? And it could be really hazardous to your health, maybe even deadly, to not have your coat. But Jesus, and usually at that time, was also the rich who were the ones who would be suing the poor, impoverishing them even more and making them absolutely destitute. But by giving your coat along with your shirt, it didn't just leave you unclothed, unclothed, but it shamed the powerful in what they were doing by reducing others to such a lowly state. So it's completely subversive. And finally, when Jesus instructs his audience to go two miles for the person who forced them to go one, this is referring to how soldiers who belong to the Roman military, who were their enemy occupiers, they could force civilians to carry their equipment for one mile. However, Roman law strictly forbid them from forcing anybody to carry it further than that. And if they did, they could get into trouble. The soldier could get into trouble. But by going the second mile, Jesus tells his followers that rather than plot revenge or revolt against their Roman oppressors, they should subvert the enemy with love and generosity. Don't fume about being forced into labor, but show the enemy God's kind of victory over violence and injustice. And Jesus' instructions to his followers to respond like this, it undermines the system. It throws people off. And this is how life in God's kingdom is lived. Slights are met with kindness, provocation with grace, Hatred with love, and it's totally countercultural. And this continues to be the way of Jesus today. However, he doesn't just call you and I to live like this. As Haley read that passage from Hebrews 12, Jesus walked this way himself. In fact, he was the forerunner, he did this first. 
First Peter 2 says that Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So not only did Jesus set us an example of willing to suffer in justice and respond in love, but he also did it for his enemies. But his enemies weren't just limited to those Romans who crucified him, nor just the religious establishment who handed him over because they were full of jealousy and fear. But the Bible also says that at one time, friends, we were also Jesus' enemies, and he sacrificially loved us. Romans 5, 10, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Colossians 1, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. It's this love extended to you and I while we were still his enemies that Jesus now commands us to offer our enemies this love that is sacrificial. It's indiscriminate. It's costly. Now, you might be saying to yourself, that's wonderful, Dave, but I don't have any enemies. Perhaps you don't. Or, perhaps like me, you just don't like to use the label enemy for them. Because our enemy can be anyone that we are holding a grudge against. Anyone who annoys you or someone you gossip about, someone you think is not deserving of your time. We can be just like the religious leaders of Jesus' day where our enemies' lists are full of those who do not fit on our exclusive neighbor's Rolodex. Those who aren't like us, those who don't live up to our standards and expectations of holiness or whatever, those whom we don't want to associate with. I think one of the saddest things in our cultural moment within Christianity is that we are more likely to have feelings of hostility towards another Christian who believes like 95% of the same stuff we do, but that remaining 5% makes them repugnant in our eyes. Today, we have our own Samaritans, just like the Israelites had in their day. But we see through the life of Jesus what his response was to that. How he calls us to be neighbors. If you're still struggling in your own mind to come up with a few examples in your life of who your enemies are that Jesus is calling you to love, I would encourage you just to ask someone who knows you very well and see if they can help you identify some of the enemies in your life that you need to start loving. And I'm serious about that. And I don't think I should encourage you to do something that I'm not willing to do myself. 
So this week in preparation for this sermon, I did this, that very thing. I asked a couple of people who know me very well if they could identify my enemies. And I'm sorry to say to you that it was far easier for them than I would like to admit for them to come up with a quick list of those people who I think have wronged me or that I have resentment for. Now, I would never call anybody my enemy because that's not Christian. But Jesus wants us to get real with one another, and he wants us to get serious about loving our enemies. Throughout his Sermon on the Mount, he continues to address what's going on inside of us. He wants us to deal ruthlessly with the disease of hate and anger that's killing us and our relationships. And he doesn't just offer us some quick tips for a better relationship or a few life hacks. He requires a complete overhaul. A whole new life in a new family. Twice he says it in today's passage. He appeals to his followers to live his countercultural way on the basis of the new life because now they are a part of his family. In verse 44 to 45, Jesus says, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father who is in heaven. Verse 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Do you see what he is saying? Do not be like everybody else. You're no tax collector. You're not a Pharisee or a pagan. You're more than that. You are my sisters and my brothers. God is your heavenly father. You are a part of our family. So live up to the family name. Do what the family does. And what is it we do? We love our enemies. In God's kingdom, loving enemies, it runs in the family. And if you put your hope and your trust in Jesus, and you call yourself his follower, you are no longer an enemy of God. His love has brought you into his family, and now, as his child, he expects you and I to respond to injustice with kindness, to turn enemies into friends through sacrificial love, just like our older brother Jesus did for us. And here's the thing about love. It works. Love works, but revenge and hate, they never made someone come to their senses. Oh, you hated me that much. Oh, I'm sorry. Retaliation and holding grudges, it never causes another person to feel ashamed about their own bad behavior or want to make nice with you. It only makes things worse. Love, however, it's the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. You know, a number of weeks ago when I spoke about Jesus' um, words to us about anger, I, I talked about uh, an incident with my son when he was in elementary school, when he was being picked on by a couple of kids and how angry that made me and how I wanted to respond out of that anger. But the Holy Spirit said, Dave, you need to stop and stay out of this. And that... Somehow, my son was able to transform those relationships through kindness, through playing together, through his generosity. 
My angry actions would have only made things worse. But his love, it transformed the situation, winning freedom from being bullied, but also turning these enemies into friends. It was a double victory. Turning the other cheek, going the extra mile. These are two ways that you and I can put into practice the countercultural love for enemies that is the mark of authenticity that we actually belong to the family of God. So I think that there are a couple of standout challenges for us from this passage that I would want to encourage us to put into practice. First, as I already mentioned, it is important for us to identify the situations or the people in our lives where we have enemies. Again, if you struggle with that label or if you need help, identifying who those people are in your life. Talk to someone who knows you well. I'm sure they can help you out with that. Then we need to ask ourselves this question. What does it mean for me to reflect God's generous love to that person or in that situation? Despite the pressure and the provocation I feel, despite my anger and my frustration, what would it mean for me to show God's generous love? Second, we need to pray. Jesus commands in verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The thing about prayer is it changes things. Not only in other people, but maybe more importantly, it changes something in us. I think it's impossible for us to continue to go on praying for someone without caring for them without growing in compassion and mercy for them. Perhaps it's actually impossible to go on praying for an enemy because you'll no longer see them as one. And so as we consider how we are to love others, and as we pray for them, we demonstrate whose children we are. We, we start to bear that family resemblance when we become peacemakers like Jesus, when we overcome evil with good, just like he did, when we love others first, just like he first loved us. Would you stand with me? And we're going to pray and invite the worship team to come on up. Father, you are such a a good and generous God. Thank you so much for loving us despite how undeserving we are. Despite our rebellion and how we ignore you at times, you are a generous Father who runs after us. Thank you so much for sending your son Jesus who not only died for our sins, that he showed us how to live this life and he gave us these words and we just thank you that they are the words of life. Though they may be difficult, where else can we go but to you? That you are our hope and our salvation, that you are the forerunner. You're not calling us to do something that you haven't done, but you did it first and that you empowered us by your Holy Spirit. You promised never to leave us or forsake us, but when you call us to do this, you promise that you will come with us. And so we thank you. Thank you that we get to do that in community too. And we just pray, Lord, today that you would help us to go from here to love all those that you've put in our path. 
but specifically help us to be people who reconcile, who seek out those broken relationships just like you did us and help us to love like you loved us. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.